Welcome to Bad Impressions, our first podcast back from 2021. We have a great episode here for everybody. I'm joined, like always, by Lee Elliott and Ryan Farley. And our first guest to kick off the year is the one and only Michael Inger. Mike, do you want to take a quick second and give everyone a little brief background? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Canada. I now live in New York, married with two one-year-old kids. I'm the co-founder and president of Very Good Light which is a, a publisher that, that aims to shine a light on underrepresented communities and voices. Before that, I worked with you all at VaynerMedia and a few other stops along the way. What I find really interesting about Mike's arc is that he started in Canada, which is very cold, but seems determined to end up in hell, which is very hot. But Mike has joined us here to talk about some subjects on which he is a genuine demonstrable expert. The first one being an examination of brands that state that they're trying to build a community and all of the activity that they designate under that umbrella, as well as all of the outcomes and strategic directions they hope to go in by starting and curating and managing and possibly, and we'll discuss this, enriching or not truly enriching that community. And so we think that there'll be a lot of value for anybody working in any scenario where they have either decided themselves or have been entrusted by somebody else with the responsibility of building a community online, offline, transcendent of online or offline or anything. So with that, I think we'll kick it to Mike to kind of outline the way that he is looking at building a community for a brand online and otherwise. Yeah, I, I will say, I don't know that I'm an expert on this subject, but I, you know, let's call it an eager explorer. So you guys know that I joined Very Good Light about a year ago and we've been kind of like actively expanding the, the editorial platform and, and the different ways that we can communicate our message, whether that's digitally or, or through physical product. And, you know, we, we do very much feel like we have a community of, of readers. I wouldn't say everyone has lofty goals when it comes to pushing culture forward, but we very much strive to push culture forward. And I think that everyone who follows us on social or, or reads us on site has a, a bit of that thread in them. What I'm always trying to understand a, a little bit better is what is community? Why is it perceived to be important? Where does it live? That is especially important if you're talking about being a brand or any kind of business that seeks to work with communities. Like, is it in a Facebook group? Is that a community? Is it physical and happening in real life? It probably starts in just defining it, which we were talking a little bit off, uh, off camera or off pod, if that's the way to speak about it. It's a collection of people, obviously. I think it's a shared interest or a residence in, in some cases. But I think the real crux of it is that to be a part of a community, for a brand to say that they have a community, for me to feel like I'm a part of a community, I feel like I have to actually engage with other people. It can't just be me liking a post or, or, or maybe purchasing a product. Maybe it can be, and I'd love to talk more about that today. But keeping with this idea and maybe in the, in the parlance of our times, I just want to know, like, is a Facebook group a community? Are brands or influencers, followers a community? If you buy something from a brand and receive their emails, like, are you a part of their community? Like, these are the things I'm always thinking about because I know that some brands do this really well. I think a lot of other brands like to signal that they have a community, but don't actually enrich that community in any way. 
brands are quick to highlight the community they've fostered or the, the collective they've raised. But if you asked most of those so-called community members, if they're a part of a community, I'm guessing their response would fall along a spectrum that ranges from the affirmative to, I have no idea what you're talking about, lol. And I, I bet that like the majority would fall between indifferent and lol rather than like any kind of genuine enthusiasm, if that makes sense. It does. I think there's a lot of terms in marketing where there's this hilarious assumption that people know what you're talking about at, at the consumer level. And an example I used on a previous episode that I love is that I think that anyone who answered, yes, I expect a curated omni-channel retail experience as a consumer to a survey should like seek treatment. I think it's insane for a marketer to think like we need to ask our customers if they seek an omni-channel curated seamless online offline experience, you know? And I think that's similar to the question of, do you consider yourself a part of the Postmates community or something? Like who knows if they know what that means? How much of it is imposed by the brand versus how much of it is more I hesitate to use the word organic, but because I'm thinking of, you know, Mike, your example earlier of how much like just putting in my email, am I part of the Madewell community? Like, no, I don't really think so. Like that, it's not something I think about, but one example, and you all will probably make fun of me for this, but everybody knows I like to read a lot. And one of the things I discovered in 2020 was book of the month. And it's super cool. You just pick one book they send you every month, but they don't preach any sort of community it's just like these people who are avid readers who want like, what are the next month books going to be like all the spoilers. I've gone down this rabbit hole of Facebook groups. So to your point, Mike, the Facebook groups that are all just other fans. And that does feel like a community. Like I weirdly have started to like, like I just lurk in them. I don't post, but like, what are, what are my book of the month friends talking about? Like what is next month? And, and to me, that feels like it's a community and it's been something this year when you know, everyone's at home. And for me, reading a lot, that's my little community is that weird book of the month spoilers Facebook group. Who knows anything about what, you know, Jenna Bush Hager is going to pick for her January book of the month. And that's, I think, really important to call out, which is, I think like as a brand or a business, you can hope to build a community. You can maybe try and put the right infrastructure in place. You can try and like create a spark. But ultimately, like that has to become community owned really quickly. Like you have to enjoy what your fellow book reader might recommend as much as anything the brand or the platform might recommend. And I think that's uh, super important, right? Like there's a lot of examples that we can point to folks that we think have a community, like Glossier is a good example. We talked earlier about like the Bills Mafia or my wife's a part of like Facebook groups for new moms. I also think about Patagonia. I don't know that Patagonia ever set out to create a community, but like their actions kind of enabled a community. And then they started to work to enrich that community, whether it was through like their political or environmental or social efforts, they just double down on their recycled clothing program. Like they're clearly cultivating and giving back and enriching and providing real value to the community, just like your, your book recommendations do. So Rothy's, I think one of them- that's, that's another good, good one. Sorry to interrupt, David. I don't know if someone started those Facebook groups, but now there's all these Facebook groups of women, I think mostly women, exchanging Rothy's, like reselling them, like 
Oh, you're telling me I need to join the Rothy's Facebook group now? Oh, it's a huge thing. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm a big Rothy's fan, so might need to look into that. Definitely. So I think, I think one of the things that's very important in terms of the word community, Ryan is, is very close to, or like leading this part in terms of self-identification. There has to be an element of to be a part of a community, and maybe I'm getting into maybe more semantics of it, but my personal view is you have to feel something about this community is something that you identify yourself mm -hmm. with. So, you know, the Bills Mafia, like they're Bills fan, like you would you identify as a Bills fan, like Ryan very much identifies as an avid reader. So while she doesn't identify as a book of the month club member, but she very much so identifies with with reading. And so I think there has to be very strong elements for maybe an authentic community it has to resonate with something that they identify with. And I think you were also touching on a very good point in terms of like the authenticity and the organic nature of it. Brands really can't like force it upon people. The community itself has to be part owners in the discussion and material and the dissemination of information. If not, it's just someone trying to like facilitate a classroom or a lecture or something. And that's not really necessarily a community as well. There has to be this like self-identification. Maybe that there's the root. If you want to build a community is you have to distill down like whatever you're trying to do into, is that an element that can be self-identified within individuals to then become a part of this community? interesting thing to think about is I would argue that most often a brand's highlighting or marketing or, or signaling about their community operates above the actual community where it's certainly less about the members, right? Like maybe it's helping to fundraise or sell products. And it feels to me a little bit like borrowing someone's art or like treating freelancers or interns unfairly. Like I don't know that anyone within this so-called community gave you the permission to let the greater population know the capital markets, like all of these other things that you have this community. And again, I think your idea that it needs to be defined and I think semantics actually matter. It's like, can we all agree what this actually is? Because then I think you, you empower the people who are actually or, or not really a part of these communities, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think also like you're, you're getting close to maybe like kind of like one of the ma major tent poles of this podcast in just terms of maybe we just ask the question now is like, what is bad about all of the online communities? What's a, a negative detractor about them? And what should marketers while they're maybe even the, if they need to create one and they find that like it is important to their brand, like what are some things that they should look to avoid uh, and steer clear of? If you're going to say that you have a community, then I think the benefit to the community has to be equal to the brand, right? Like I think we're, or, or at least we're getting closer to that place where it can't be so disproportionately favorable to the brand. Plenty of brands have raised hundreds of millions of dollars at obscene valuations on the backs of their, again, quote unquote, community buying their products in exchange for a half a second feature on an Instagram story. I think it's worth exploring what are some meaningful ways that you can actually enrich the community, give value to them. I don't want to discount, and maybe this is giving them the easy way out, but like, I don't want to discount that if you're 
you know, building a business, if it's a small team, if you're in the fortunate position to maybe be able to tap into a community, like I get that you may not have all of the resources and the staff to create like this really robust program, at least not initially. I think it's also easy to give people the benefit of the doubt that, you know, your heart's in the right place. But at the end of the day, I think the majority of brands that have a community are probably disproportionately benefiting from that. And so like, how do you close the gap, right? If we're thinking about this more optimistically. I think one of the things you touched on, Mike, that's interesting to me is the brand who the community is, you get yourself featured for a second on an Instagram story, which how much is that giving the consumer versus a community where they're interacting more with fellow consumers and it's more about a shared love of the product rather Mm -hmm. than, oh, the brand, I don't want to say like values because they put me on their Instagram story, but you know, like, is it just places I shop from that I'm part of those communities or is it more of a like, no, these are people who get the same things as me. And I think the Patagonia example is an interesting one that kind of walks this almost like wiggly line between the two that it can tap both ways. I don't really have a definitive answer there. Those are more just the things that that makes me think of. So I I mentioned earlier that I grew up in Canada, but I actually moved to Maine when I was 15, right around the time where you were either wearing a North Face or a Patagonia. And at the time, I don't think anyone could tell the difference, but I think I know a lot of people who, you know, kind of picked a side. Uh, Like I'm only going to wear North Face or I'm only going to wear Patagonia. And so, you know, Dave, you mentioned kind of self-identifying with, I think before anyone really knew, certainly in 1996, um, you know, the, the kind of culture that Patagonia had and the things they were doing environmentally, especially if you were like a 15 or 16 year old, you were just like, all right, I think Patagonia is cool. So I'm going to identify with Patagonia, at least when it comes to outerwear. And then since then, they have done all these things that I think have done a really good job of, of, you know, again, as I say, like enriching the community or providing value back to them in ways that are maybe more meaningful than just providing a discount. Or to your point, Ryan, you know, buy 10, get the 11th free. Flipping back to the side of someone who, whether they're looking to build a community that provides value or cynically extract, either way, is there any sense to trying to look at any given user and of course on the aggregate all your users and determine which of them are part of your community or create a gradient scale is that really possible beyond looking at who self-identifies is there anything remotely like a standardized measurement for a given brand because obviously i don't think You could ever standardize understanding community across all brands, but would it be worth for anyone, whether they have a community and they're trying to grow it or they don't have one and they're trying to build it to try and even develop any kind of framework that does things like say, okay, this person did this, they're a part of the community now, or is that kind of a fool's errand? No, I think ambassador programs, like I think that's a, you know, if you're looking at like concentric circles, for example, I think if you opt in to be an ambassador to the brand and and that's a scenario too, where I think like there's a few platforms that have popped up to make that easier for brands. I think like you can ask them to do things and you kind of state the terms very clearly. Like if you do this, we'll give you this. It's, I don't think as strong as what you've talked about, Ryan, which is like the community kind of like 
taking over, engaging without the participation of the brand. But I think there's ways to, you know, identify those subsets of people that like genuinely appreciate what you're doing and want to support, whether that's in big ways or small ways. There's lots of ways to define those, but I think like that's an easy one. It's just like who would actually opt into this if we made it real, as opposed to just like a signal of our prosperity. What do you think is the value, and maybe this could be quantitative or qualitative, like for the brand to have a community? I think in my case specifically, if we have a community, I think like clearly it helps to distribute whatever we are trying to distribute. That core group of community members or customers are going to be responsible for, you know, a disproportionate amount of your sales, let's say. So I think the the ability to kind of better distribute whatever it is you're trying to distribute is the the primary one. You know, when it comes to like more traditional forms of marketing, and this gets back to distribution, but word of mouth, that kind of friend referral, social referral, like plenty of brands that have done this really well in digital ways and using different platforms. But I think for me specifically, it's, this is a group of people that we can share ideas with, whether that's content, you know, we're launching the skincare products in March. So it's feedback on our formulas and the products that we want to launch and the packaging and how we go to market with them. Like it is genuinely an incredible source of feedback and I think also like a source of strength and and I think more like emotional strength like especially if you're you know just starting out and you're small like those first group of customers like maybe they're ambassadors they're part of this early community like that makes it so much easier to do the hundred things that you need to do every week right because you're wearing lots of different hats like I think the feedback, the distribution, like they're your, your best customers or they'll help spread the word, but they're also like incredibly inspirational, especially if you're a brand that, you know, is trying to do more than just sell a product. If you're trying to advocate for something, if you're trying to push culture forward, you know, the fact that like you have someone else that's going to try and help you do that again in big or small ways is incredibly powerful. I think the interesting thing there is, and you brought this up a little earlier, but how does that either coexist or interact with the influencer model? You know, it's like, and that's where you get into the organic versus, I don't want to say organic versus paid, but like how much of that is, where are you finding these people who really truly do love a product and are going to promote that to their network? How do you find this and make it seem as genuine as possible? that kind of bleeds a little bit into the the content plus commerce stuff that we're talking about. If you're an influencer and you have been producing incredible content so that you have this really amazing audience, you have their attention. I think the best examples of leveraging that audience, if you're an influencer, let's say, and, and this is your community are not just with like physical product that sells millions of dollars worth of product in a day, which I think Jeffree Star did, but it's actually doing something that enriches others, right? As opposed to just yourself. Now you could argue that 
if you're an influencer and you're producing all this content until you started making real money, like you were enriching others at the expense of your bank account. There's some influencers have done a very good job of launching products that make sense for their community and community has clearly wanted those products and they find them valuable and that's helped enrich the influencer. It'll be interesting to see what happens with a lot of those businesses because we're still in the early stages. I think like there aren't many influencer led brands that are a decade old. And I think it's hard to get to 10 years. Some of them have been fortunate enough to, to sell and we'll see what those PLs look like when they get to the, the decade mark. But yeah, I think like the influencer wrinkle, it's a good example on one hand of like, clearly people want to be a part of a community because that's a shared interest. Like they love the content or they love the hijinks or they love whatever. But on the other hand, would they say that they felt it was a fair value exchange? I guess I think they would if it was like content. If it's a YouTuber, right? I think like most people would say, yeah, like I tune in because I can relate and I love the content. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It makes me smile. And I think that almost works out perfectly. And then how you add those additional products on is where either like that relationship maybe strengthens and the community takes it and runs with it, or it starts to, to fracture a little bit. I'm probably like the cynic of, of the group, but I think when we start talking about like the communities and, and influencers, I always just like envision in, in this world, you know, that we're creating here with this example is influencers are kind of like plants in the audience, you know, in terms of like, they kind of have some like ulterior motives and maybe like trying to like swirl around, you know, the, the authenticity of a lot of like brands that are trying to do. And, and then there's all a lot of brands who go around that and try to like make their community kind of a, a front or a, you know, a gussied up way to call like just their, their customer base. Uh, and there really isn't like any like true intent uh, of a community. It just maybe feels and sounds better to call them a community than, than a customer base. I didn't know if you had any like thoughts or reactions to my cynical stance. It's a really interesting um, question because I think there are lots of performance marketers like all of us that would say, you know what, like you building that brand is less important right now than you finding customers. And once you've found customers and you can actually pay for things, then you can focus on building that brand, let's say. Like you don't have a brand unless you have customers. And so if you're viewing an influencer relationship to their community, followers or customer base is purely transactional, then I think, yeah, like an influencer has a customer base that they sell things to. Initially that is content and then it becomes brand sponsorships and all these other things. And I'm sure things will be much different when my kids are like 13 and content is like streaming through their eyeballs. But like those audiences weren't forced to be there. Again, you know, YouTube algorithm demons aside, everyone had the free will to choose to send some of these TikTokers to tens of millions of followers versus not. And they got there way before any brands got on board and it started to become more transactional. Now, you know, there's, I'm sure plenty of people who are actually going into the influencer profession solely for the purpose of enriching themselves. But, you know, I don't know, it's hard to fault them because like everyone else goes into the job market with the purpose of like making a living. It's a little scary that so many people now when they're polled who are like 15 want to be YouTubers. I still want to be a YouTuber. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, I want to be a TikToker. You'd be a great TikToker, Ryan. I tried. My 13-year-old cousin 
or no, she's 11. Maybe she told me that my joints, I needed to oil my hinges because I wasn't good at the dances. <laughs> well, that's oh the thing, God. right? It's like, I wasn't at first glance. Like I, I would say, oh, like I could never be, or I would never want to be, but I would love to be an influencer or a TikToker. And like, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure there. There are a lot of challenges, of course, but like, it seems pretty fun. But then it gets back to kind of the, you know, I think the best ones will take their fame and take their communities and do amazing and incredible things, just like some brands are. Like, I think there's a lot of people now who are reevaluating their work-life balance. They're reevaluating like the kinds of companies they work for. Google employees are unionizing. I think if you can work for a company or, or do this yourself and contribute to a social good, that's like incredible. But, you know, it's up to the brand, it's up to the influencer, et cetera. I think it's also a good point, you know, and I think that kind of like also puts even me in check in terms of maybe one of the, the fallacies that, that I approach a lot of like marketing is I am a performance marketer by circumstance, I guess, uh, in, in my career. But like, uh, I do view a lot of these things that are more like equity and brand building and community, you know, efforts, still very transactional. I, I still feel like at the root of kind of everything that if you're putting money behind something, you know, there has to be an ROI, whether it's explicit or it's implicit. And so like, I think that's kind of like a good point in terms of like, yes, there are some things that are bigger and aren't necessarily as uh, inherently transactional as you make a search query and I force, uh, you know, an, an ad uh, on the top of, you know, your search results page, you know, that feels very transactional, but there are broader things beyond that, that do give brands, you know, a lot of authenticity and it's not as disingenuous as I'm really just at the end of the day after your money. There's probably another avenue that that kind of comes or that, or that's the hope, but it's not as like icky as I'm like trying to paint it sometimes in, in my head. I think Ryan's right that if you are a part of a community, you have to self-identify, right? Not someone's placed that label on you. Just like I think, you know, David, brands have to have self-awareness. I would challenge all of us to name five brands that you like genuinely care about, right? I think that's part of the problem. Like, comes to distribution of resources, like where they're placing their dollars, like how much time they spend on an email, how many cooks they're in the kitchen for so many decisions. It's like, I would argue that most people don't care about brands and there are only a handful of brands to every individual that actually like have a deeper meaning beyond the purchase, right? I need something, you have something. But every brand hopes to have more than that. I think the majority of brands think they have more than that. And that's, that's a fallacy, right? Like that is just disillusionment at its strongest. So I think at some point, like it has to come down to dollars and cents, but I think the best brands will understand kind of like where they sit in the minds of a consumer. And then they will like operate appropriately. And if you get to a place that the brand becomes more meaningful and you have this group of consumers, let's call it a community that really do love your brand and love your products and love what you stand for, then the next step there is to obviously give back to that community to help enrich that community to like create a more, again, equitable kind of relationship. And that I think is the pinnacle. It's like, if you can get to that point, it's like you're in brand nirvana, right? Like that would be the thing. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I think it kind of ties back to what you said earlier, the community owned piece of it. Like it, it needs to feel more that the community is in charge of creating the community. That's like using the same word to describe it, but you know, it, it can't be forced down your throat by the brand. It has to be something that comes from your fans. One example of a brand that does community really well and like is also in line with the current shift to like niche categories. Do you guys know Gymshark? So Gymshark, they early on enlisted a ambassador platform technology called Brand Ambassador, which is interesting to think about. Like I know like logistically it helps, but to your point, David, it feels more transactional, even if what you're asking people to do is more mission-based as opposed to just like purchase. But if you go to their Instagram, it is now a community of people who post their own workouts. Most recently it's been like all kind of non-gym related, you know, body weight exercises. But if you're like following Gymshark on Instagram and you're into exercise working out every single day or multiple times a day, like I don't follow it that closely someone is submitting their workout, right? Like it's really taken off. And, you know, it's certainly like a category of athlete or, or exerciser. Uh, is exerciser a word? But it's perfect. It's like you probably created a foundation to allow for people to access your platform, which now reaches lots of people. And it's a source of inspiration. It's a source of education. And of course they can then pair that with all these products. And like, they don't even have to overtly sell anything. Like, of course, you're going to buy Gymshark things if you're going there daily to get their body weight exercise video of the day. I would love to talk to those guys. Uh, like, how did that start? And it helps, I think, when you have these more niche categories, like super passionate people who are maybe, you know, Ryan, like looking for a community. They just haven't found one and maybe they find it online or, you know, whatever it is. Before we move on past this to uh, anything around sort of linear commerce and content-based commerce, I kind of have a pragmatic exercise and in, in utility info oriented question. And I'll kind of start with one either nascent example or bad example, and then maybe we can get to the good, more developed example of very good light. And this goes back to something you mentioned about where does community live? And this is a question that we have been dealing with because, all right, we're, we're having a hashtag build in public moment here. You know, since in 2021, your company's not legit unless your entire code base is online and your Slack channel's public. So here we go. We're trying eventually to build a community for this podcast. It's very mm -hmm. early on. And we know ideally where we would like this to go, probably. You know, we've talked about a Discord. We've talked about, you know, sort of a VOD thing. We've talked about with the emergent stuff like Clubhouse going there. And then we look at the stark reality. And apologies to anyone I know who works at LinkedIn listening to this. And we do want to have you in later to talk to about that. But we're staring starkly at the reality of where our audience lives and where it's going to consume content about a digital marketing podcast. And, you know, I cry into my pillow every night about this basically being a LinkedIn driven podcast. 
so we're at this point where we know where we get traffic from we know where people interact and everything it's hard to know how we should feel about that how much impact we can have on that like how much we can force anything and what the next step even is basically we're sitting here mostly driving traffic from linkedin promotion wishing community lived in other places i think a little gun shy to try and make it live anywhere else uh, and we're, we're total amateurs and so I, i'm wondering to sort of make this in a little pragmatic case it very good light had was there ever any sort of juncture where you looked at community it had one shape and one dimension and, and lived somewhere and it was either the right thing to do to alter that or it was kind of just you know i i there's the old I don't think anyone in media buying says, oh, I'm channel agnostic anymore because it, it makes you sound like some sort of aged cringe atheist uh, mm -hmm. like me. But what is the, the approach? Is it when you assess what your community in a, a small state is and where it lives, is there any sense to trying to shape where it lives? Is that a long-term investment where you're doing something difficult for a big payout later? Or is there nothing but meet people where they are? I wish I had like a really good anecdote about trying to tame a wild animal or something. But I, I don't think you can create or shape a destination or a place where it all lives. I think like as I think most people would try and control that. Right. And like we we certainly looked into different options and platforms. There is a, a company called Geneva. Uh, that just launched that is very kind of consumer friendly. But at the end of the day, it's like, and, you know, we've dealt with this in our careers about like, you know, are we just like moving people from one platform to another and to another? I, I think like the community comes to you or, or you develop the community through content, through a shared interest. Again, maybe it's a residence, but then I, I don't think you can like rustle everyone up and throw them in a discord because I think for you, it might be like a constant reminder of just how much more you have to do to create like real engagement and participation. Like maybe it takes off. I think there's plenty of examples of these things taking off, but it's probably way better if someone in your community creates the discord. I think we've talked a little bit about, well, could we create the Facebook group and then you know, empower one of our community members to moderate it and really, you know, make it sing, let's say. I think like that's a way that you can have uh, a hand in it. But I think ultimately for brands or for content creators to try and create this other place that's exclusive, that's for, you know, the uh, brilliant discussion that happens on bad impressions and outside of bad impressions, like, I don't know. I think that's I think that's hard to do and probably not worth the time. I think if you get to a point where you're delivering content that is so good that people want to discuss it more outside of the podcast, that makes sense. That's when it'll probably be a much richer environment for everyone. Now, it's not to say that you couldn't figure out interesting ways to repurpose this content in a way that gives you more ownership over your audience, obviously. I've been like kind of fascinated by Substack uh, and have been exploring all the different niche opportunities there. And not surprising, I think like everyone on Substack is talking about business or they're talking about politics or 
maybe marketing, but the people who are going to kill on places like that are the ones that are early to categories that are just not being discussed there. Like I have a friend who she's a new mom. She's very enlightened, right? And she's also a trained yoga instructor. She's, you know, kind of developing on the fly a, a really interesting approach to just childcare, but, but also I think her focus is especially on the mother and no one is on Stubstack doing that right now. Right. And it may not be the best platform for it, but I just think that like, there are other platforms where you could probably repurpose some of this. It'll, it'll take a lot of time, but then that would be an audience. And I'm sure Substack a year from now will be like, you know what we need to do? We need to make it possible for everyone who subscribes to this newsletter to talk about this newsletter because all these assholes who want to create a community uh, want this feature, you know, and then maybe it happens organically. That's very, very helpful. I know that you say that you're merely an eager explorer and not an expert, but we have much to consider here. Mostly that I may have to remain the kind of pervert who posts frequently to LinkedIn for a long time, which such is my fate. I guess we can move on to the the e-commerce 3.0, 4.0, 5.0 linear commerce part of the podcast. For those of you who don't know, uh, Very Good Light is essentially a publication and a community that has transitioned into the product space, which is to say that they're at the center and, and born in the era and born around the idea of merging content and commerce, which is a topic that I think has obviously been of major interest to large segments of the stuff selling universe online for a while, but everyone understands is both highly developed already and yet in some sort of transitional phase, both in America and globally in different ways. Mike, I guess, how are if there's the one thing that you're thinking about in 2021 for e-commerce, or as I've been told now, you're not supposed to call it e-commerce because that reveals that you don't understand that all commerce shall be E, and yet <laughs> E does not define the commerce. I'm not kidding. I've I've been uh, I've I've been scolded by someone who I don't actually think is pedantic or lame on that one. So it seems to have taken hold, but. Yeah, what, what's going on with content and, and selling trinkets? So af after having hundreds of conversations with investors and there's no shortage of like investors, industry people, VC folks who are looking for the next best thing and as has been overly reported around reaching your, your CAC ceiling and just super funding growth, like everyone's looking for the way to grow companies still to scale them quickly, but in a way that costs them a lot less money. And so the idea of like linear commerce was born, that you will do the hard work of developing an audience and then developing something of value to sell to them. There's a bunch of good examples recently, I think, you know, say what you want about Barstool Sports, but clearly they've done very well merging content and commerce. Houdinki, if you guys are familiar with them, is like someone that 
folks in the space love to signal to, but they've done a really great job of beginning with a more niche audience or, or category, which is like watches and luxury watches and kind of building around that. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, not to speak for them, but the people that funded them would probably say, yeah, yeah, like it's not just watches, which is niche, but, you know, valuable. They understand the luxury goods market, right? Like that's how these things kind of scale. I think it has to start with content and storytelling. All brands launch a blog, all brands want to be good storytellers. After now being at a publisher for a year, I can tell you that it is really, really hard. And so we feel like we have quite a, a head start on this idea of content plus commerce. I think the OG in this space, although it happened in reverse, is Red Bull, which is kind of an unbelievable story where they apparently had these ridiculous ambitions. They own a Formula One team now, but they started pushing cans of like some unknown substance at bars with vodka. And then they went into... Oh, there's uh, the coattails of Jaeger. Yeah, totally. You know, then they started creating YouTube videos and they started sponsoring festivals and they started creating their own festivals. If you go back, like a, kind of a fun thing I did a while ago is if you look at Red Bull's first YouTube video, it was like a guy ollieing a picnic table in a public park. You know, most recently they sent a guy from space down to earth, right? So I think if you have a long enough time horizon the idea of content plus commerce or linear commerce can be like ridiculously lucrative. Folks at like 2 p.m. and Lean Lux read a lot about this, but it makes sense. If you develop an audience, you develop a bit of a platform and you really understand what makes that category tick, like there's probably a lot of extensions off of it. Direct ones like for us, you know, we have this wonderful community who comes to the site to read articles about beauty and skincare and redefining masculinity, or maybe just kind of larger themes around uh, stories around like culture or celebrity or what have you. But then I think if you know that community well, you can probably pretty successfully sell them physical products or digital products, or obviously you'll generate brand revenue. But then I think there's a whole host of indirect or more passive revenue streams that show themselves, which for me feels like the future. Again, like if you're talking about Houdinki, they started talking about watches, about Houdinki, but like they have done such a good job of creating kind of this, you know, the source of truth for everyone who's really passionate about luxury watches, hard to find watches, mechanical engineering. Like there are so many extensions, like the word cloud off of this is massive. And then you can start to, to pick apart like where those opportunities are and prioritize them. And then, you know, obviously you'll, you'll kind of live or die based on those choices, but you can get to a really special place that gives you a lot of optionality just because you've developed good content in a niche that has a passionate consumer base, David, or community around it. The Hodinkee example is interesting to me, and you noted that they've even gone into things where they're looking at the mechanical engineering of watches, because I think that's an instinct that comes naturally to some people about these enterprises. It sort of comes naturally to me as an exhaustive, deconstructive person, you know, some sort of mm -hmm. human nightmare Six Sigma thing. It's interesting because there seems to be this 
notion of stay in your lane, have a right to be somewhere, have an established authority. And so do you think it's just these companies, it's not that they're merely exhaustive and unafraid to iterate slightly in the spaces. Is there any sort of systemic or structural way to go about understanding the best possible place to expand into? Has VGL expanded into any sort of unexpected little country roads alongside the K-Beauty Highway? Yeah, I think there's both the qualitative and quantitative data. And then I think to your point, like you have to be unafraid of new frontiers, right? So I think, so this hoodie I'm wearing, not to be too promotional because your listeners can't see it, but we basically designed a knockoff of the anti-social social club hoodie. Maybe we'll have to edit that out if, if I'm going to get sued for saying knockoff. Uh, we, we developed an homage to the there you go anti-social social club hoodie, but it says Asian Social Skincare Club. And it's just like, it kind of perfectly envelops who some people are within our community around, you know, being Asian American. And to your point, like, you know, we've been writing about K-beauty and K-pop for a while. And it just, it perfectly fit from a design standpoint and from like a physical product standpoint. You know, I think if I'm Houdinki and I have a captive audience who probably lean like I'm interested in how things work and the mechanics of things on a small scale, maybe they develop a Coursera course, right? And like they hire an expert or they're the experts and they kind of look at the mechanics of watches. Like that's probably pretty fascinating content. And my dad's a professor and I, I, I know there are no shortage of classes covering any number of kind of educational territories that probably have a pretty good following online, right? You know, the larger scale ambition would be for Houdinki to have a show on the History Channel or whatever channel is now kind of creating content around things that are kind of interesting and, and real Plus. and how things work. Yeah, Discover. You know, but I think like if you are, if you are good at, at creating content and telling a story that probably means that you really understand who your audience is, you're not just trying to sell them something because you struggled with this issue in high school or, you know, whatever the reason is for, for some people to, to launch a, a business. But like, I think that skill has been incredibly under leveraged and is just now starting to be like maybe justifiably valued if that rings true for you guys. Yeah, that's a lot like, you know, taking, I guess what, what Mike Leach did uh, while he was at Washington State and he, what, he taught some class with a professor there it's like something on like insurgent warfare uh and like football strategies or something like that so like something that and going like that probably would have been one of the most fascinating things for that to be available on a coursera or, or something like that in terms of like i mean it was picked up and covered by espn and all of these other outfits because it was like almost also something like completely out of the norm or unexpected or, you know, especially as someone that's semi a wild card or fascination himself within, you know, the football community, there could, like, I think there's a lot of different kind of like elements that things can kind of blend in together to kind of create these like really like unique opportunities and experiences out there for, for individuals. Yeah. I think, you know, to Lee's earlier question, it's just like, what could you extend into? on both a 
grand scale and then of course like in in smaller ways if we all agree that like we're going to probably spend more time consuming content than less time and even if we're like shifting towards getting outside more eventually i think we're probably going to have like our earbuds in the whole time or we're going to have like contact lenses that show us certain things either way i just think to go kind of headlong into developing content is a skill that's probably going to serve you really well for a while if you're in the business of creating and marketing that content and figuring out different ways to build businesses on top of it or or revenue streams within a business but yeah i think like to get into your guys territory a little bit uh, i was talking to our good friend ian waldron the other day and with the idfa changes if a lot of brands start to really see their you know customer acquisition costs skyrocket with some of these data and privacy changes that affect your ability to find your first customers you know businesses that have a foundation of content that subsidizes the growth of additional revenue streams new companies uh, you know subsidizes the customer acquisition of those those businesses they're going to look pretty attractive in a way that maybe brings them to the forefront a few years earlier or maybe kind of along the lines of what we've recently seen with e-commerce. I think that dabbles uh, really closely onto another topic, maybe for another time. It could be something that we can maybe slightly explore here for a little bit. It's like the that world of the IDFA and, and attribution in terms of like your, okay, your, your customer acquisition costs are, are now increasing. And that is only your, your attribu- attributable customer acquisitions. Like if you're still a acquiring customers. You just are like losing that visibility on like where they came from. And so I think that potentially marketing departments and or orgs and and companies could look for maybe a CYA kind of approach Mm -hmm. as well, could leverage a lot of these content sources as locations for last touch UTMs or however you also want to leverage you know your your attribution model but like as that starts to decline you you need to start to like figure out a way to capture those mm-hmm. sales in terms of your 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 your, your marketing uh, initiatives and maybe we're just you know like cooking the books a little bit on like moving things around on like where are we going to like have that attribution but that's definitely something you know up like in terms of sustainability like or you know, impact within the organization as you, you know, report up, up to your seat seniority and those kind of things, they're going to want to make sure that, you know, the, the money that they're putting into the marketing org is being spent and generating like, well, so maybe there does need to be some diversification of away from these uh, attributable channels into these kind of like more brand building, uh, equity building and like community building like initiatives just based off of you know, the nature of, well, we had to capture them some way uh, to say that, like, to prove <laughs> that we're doing it. When you think about, like, the attribution of things and, and who in this marketing org benefits or, or is faced with more obstacles, like, it would be hilarious if the person behind Apple's decision was actually, like, an SEO person. <laughs> it's just been, like, you know, we need to boost, I need to lift up my SEO brethren and, like, give them, you know, a rebirth when it comes to the amount of, uh, of money they make and their prioritization within a marketing organization, because it's no longer the performance marketer who's king, you know? I think Apple, you know, jokingly, but Apple, you know, must just have real, real strong vested interest of, of bringing UTMs back, you know? Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> you know, just go, go full circle. Like, you know, like what's something we need to bring back UTMs. How do we do that? Let's kill off IDFA. Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. It can only be good for content though. I, I do think that you're, you're both hitting on something there that of all the things that people have already tried to look at this and say, well, it, let's look at what this will be good for since that seems mm-hmm. more proactive and less doom and gloom, probably only good for content marketing. So I agree that that'll be a vital skill. Mike, thanks for thanks for coming on. This has been killer with your two core topics, but here we get to kind of the dessert. So, not to say you know the the podcast is far from over and. Some might say it's just about to get good, but <laughs> time to put to you our traditional bad impressions question, which is, I think, going to be fine because this has been a, a relentlessly positive and, and looking towards ways that people can build genuine and equitable online communities that are an equal value exchange. Flipping to the tail side of the coin, what's something that's been going on in digital marketing, maybe for a little while, maybe for a long while that you think is somewhere between terrible and silly that you'd uh, like to see happen differently? My answer, and I don't know if anyone else has mentioned this, it's maybe a more specific answer. Having worked at a brand now um, in in a few different situations, I can tell you that almost uniformly, the amount of time and the number of cooks in a kitchen on email marketing is ludicrous, right? Like I have a friend who works at a large retailer that operates a number of retail brands out of Philadelphia. And every week they would have to print out their email marketing calendar and put it on like whiteboards and show it to the CEO of the company, right? Like the CEO of a company that employs thousands of people, they were still looking at a digital marketing tactic that is, I mean, what is it? Three decades old that has a 20% open rate, right? And maybe like a, a 1% or, or 3% click-through rate. So I think the confusion around what email marketing is supposed to do, which I think at the end of the day is just a reminder to shop, you know, there becomes this really ruinous uh, combination of brand and ego and founder involvement and just you know, probably way too many cooks in the kitchen overall to make that one, an enjoyable thing for anybody to work on, two, for it to be as successful as it could be, and then three, like just a pretty poor waste of resources when you think about the amount of time instead of going through approvals on email marketing that could be spent on something a bit more strategic or thoughtful is wild. Like you add all that up, and put it in your pipe and smoke it. And like, I don't know, it's a, it's a horrible waste and it's a very bad thing in, in digital marketing. So what I also think is fascinating about this is you could almost do a finer place of this description of what you could say is the oldest digital marketing discipline with what is kind of the second oldest, which is paid search. Paid search management is sick right now. It is ill. There are incredible problems in it, and they are 100% related to me to the fact that it's the oldest digital discipline, which has contributed to two things. 
one, there's a bunch of people who have been operating off complete folklore for 15 years, just made up just what someone in their own head who happened to run one of the first five paid search departments ever conceived in a fantasy world. But now that folklore is 15 years old. And so it's very powerful. And two, and this is another parallel email. Everybody thinks they know how paid search works. And so you literally have CEOs who of course are like, I want to see the keyword list. And, you know, when in this, these days I say, I, the, if you want to see the keyword list, you're dog shit dumb about paid search. Like if that's your first request, like no joke, like, you know, you know, Andy, you're the CEO and you think you need to see that. Like, sorry, you, you have lost a plot. And in fact, you've lost the book. Like, not only do, am I not going to show you that, but we don't actually write any of the search ads. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Google, Google pulls it themselves it is unbelievable how i'm not kidding people who know just not enough about paid search are the best people to do it right now and by no just not enough i mean are not subject to a body of knowledge that was built as recently as three years ago never heard of it Thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. I'm honored. Glad to be the, the first guest of 2021. Uh, much thanks also for our intro bumper. And you're about to hear the outro music to Church Girls, a.k.a. Jonathan Campo. Check them out on SoundCloud. Anyway, if you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at sadmin, S-A-D-M-I-N, at badimpressions.online. You can reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or anywhere you can find us. We are very responsive to feedback, inquiries, and guest appearance requests about the podcast. So go ahead and hit it up. Anyway, that's been us with our first salvo fired off into 2021. We hope we left a bad impression.